Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Okay, so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be at the end of chapter 4 is where we're starting today, and we're going to chew through a lot of stuff. So if you got your Bibles, flip there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one from us. Actually, a guy came and dropped off a box of purple Bibles, ESV Bibles that are like leather bound, and like people like prayed over them too, like they donated them, and they like wrote personal notes inside of them. So if you like want a Bible, grab one of those, um, and it's yours to have. Um, Okay, so while you're flipping there, uh, where we're going, it reminds me, um, I want to illustrate it. This is a a reminder for me um, as we approach this text. Several years ago, my wife and I, uh, we got flown out to California to do a wedding. Uh, I officiated a wedding out there, and we're like, let's stick around for a couple of extra days and, like, make the most of it. California's not a bad state. It's not the, it's not the beaches of Texas. Shout out Galveston. But it's a good runner-up, right? A good runner-up to Texas. And, uh, and so we thought, man, let's just soak up some California beauty. And so uh, me and Danielle, my baby's mama and wife, we were like, let's just drive around. And so we went up Pacific Coast 1, and then we cut over, and I, I planned it all. And I, and I found this place in Yosemite. So Yosemite is in California. It's a national park. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous spot. And there's this really fancy hotel right smack dab in the middle of that state park. And, uh, and so uh, we were, I planned it. Hey, I'm going to take my wife to brunch at this really fancy. I can't afford to stay at that hotel. But if I take out a second mortgage, I could feed br- her brunch there. And so I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so we do this long trek and we go up, you know, Pacific one and we cut east for several hours and get into Yosemite. But as we're entering into Yosemite, we're in our rental car and uh, there's all these guards that stop us. And I'm like, okay, cool. But there's like a lot of guards, like a, a large, significant amount of well-dressed guards even. And I remember thinking like, that's odd. And they have dogs come and they smell our car. And then they have like one of those mirror thingies to make sure we don't have a bomb under our car, which I appreciate, but I thought feels a little like overkill, but that's fine. And so they check to make sure we don't have a bomb uh, under our rental car, which we didn't. Um, that's not where the story is going. Uh, <coughs> dogs smelling our car, checking our IDs, all that kind of stuff. It's like, cool get in to the actual park and driving around. It's beautiful and gorgeous and nature and things like that. And then we pull into like this really fancy hotel area. Again, another guard station, more bombs, sniffing dogs and asking us who we are and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow, America, man, you guys are serious about your national parks. Finally, we park and, and then we go into the, the restaurant. We had reservations here. And there's like this security line to get into the lobby of uh, the hotel. And then finally we get a table and it was just one thing after the other. And I just thought, what is happening? And so we're, we're having brunch though, and it's fine. And I end up mentioning something to the waiter, like, man, you guys, you guys have a lot of security in, in the park. And he said, yeah, it's because the president is here. 
And so, yeah, the president of the United States was staying at that hotel. He had apparently done some speech in commemoration of, like, national parks. And so he was there the night before, stayed there, was still at the hotel. And so all these well-dressed security guards were Secret Service agents. And so he was there, and the Pacific, the whatever his cool helicopter thing is called, something one, Marine one, was parked out there in the yard. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. And I realized, man, there was just security at every turn we were at because it's the president of the United States. And one of the things that strikes me of that is if you are uh, an American in this room, we don't have kings, right? What this passage and what a lot of Hebrews is going to talk about is, is in a context of people who understand and feel the royalty of a king and feel how unapproachable a king and his throne is. And yet this little interaction I had just always reminds me, man, just even to drive into the park, right, which is miles and miles wide, even to enter that park, I mean, I was getting checked at this door and that door and this door and that door. We have a king. We have a king. If we are believers, right, if we're not believers, there is a king of this universe who sits on a throne, and we will all stand in judgment before that throne one day. We have a king. He is holy and he is perfect, and he is holding all things together. That is our God who sits on that throne. And what Hebrews is going to talk about, specifically at the end of chapter 4 and where we're going today, is... How do we approach him? And then also, you know, what should that even look like? How do we approach him? What's it going to look like? How is it that we come up short? And what does it look like to really, genuinely, personally, for you, wherever you're at in your life, to not just have a theoretical knowledge of a king, but to actually approach relationally uh, this king who we call God how do we do that? So let's jump into uh, chapter four. I'm going to move really fast in some sections today because we're covering a lot of stuff. We're covering a huge topic uh, today that's really important in the book of Hebrews and honestly in our life. Uh, this is a massively important. So I'm going to move really fast because I want to make sure I've got plenty of time at the end to land on clarity and to make sure we know what we're doing with this. So, so just stay with me. Four, chapter four, verses 14 through 16. This is what our author says. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These three verses are so loaded, guys. These three verses are so packed. I'm just going to open up a fire hose and just show you some observations that we see right here. First off, in verse 14, if we can actually throw verse 14 back up on the screen, we see that Jesus, Jesus in verse 14, we have a great high priest, that, that he is our high priest, and that if we hold fast to that confession, which we're going to talk about here at the end of the sermon, if we hold fast to that, that confession, which is testifying, uh, confessing, testifying that he is our high priest, if we hold fast to that, then we can approach, right? We see in verse 15 even who Jesus is in this one verse uh, that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, but um, really he, he knows our weakness because he was human. He put on human flesh. Um, our high priest, Jesus, knows what it's like to suffer, knows what it's like to be tempted, and yet is without is without sin. And so we see, we, we've seen multiple sermons even in this series where we see uh, the, the relatability of Jesus uh, in some really personal ways. He's been tempted, he doesn't know sin, and then in verse 16, 
we see how we are supposed, what we're supposed to do with all this. Him being a high priest, him being relatable to us, uh, how we're supposed to utilize that to, to approach. Um, this is amazing stuff, guys. This is amazing, revolutionary stuff in my heart, in my soul, in my devotional life. This truth that we're going to unpack changes, literally changes everything for me and for you if you're following Jesus. We can't do anything with it, though, if we don't really understand what Jesus, as our high priest, really means right? We've got to really, we can't blow past that. We all are going to project our, oh yeah, I know what a priest is. This is what the, this is so massive and I want you to see it. It's really important. Look how the Bible unpacks what a high priest is. The next four verses, the beginning of chapter five, this is what he says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So much here. Um, but what he's doing is now we've seen Jesus the high priest and we can, we can do this thing in verse 16 of how that's going to impact our life. But before we really land on verse 16 in chapter 4, what, what is it? He explains it. Right, we see, here's some observations we see just from these five, four verses. High priest, we see they act on behalf of men to God, right? Right there in verse one, that they are, when you start to make observations of who a high priest is, um, well, we're gonna, well, I'm gonna show you those observations up on the screen, ready? They act on behalf of men to God, meaning that they are, uh, representing men, and they are interceding, right? The fancy word, if I'm going to act on behalf of somebody, I'm going to intercede, I'm going to be an intercessory, I'm going to take what they need, and I'm going to bring it over here to God. That's what a priest in the Old Testament, when they heard that word, that was one of the things they, they did that we see in this passage. They offer gifts and sacrifices, right, as an intercessor to God. Uh, what else did they do? They related to humanity because they were human, Right? It says that the priest can deal gently with ignorant and wayward because those priests in the Old Testament, what they would have been hearing when they heard priest was, man, they're human, they're sinners. Those Old Testament priests had sin, so they had to make their own offerings for themselves because they weren't perfect. Um, they're, and so they're obligated to sacrifice for themselves. And then lastly, we see that they are called by God. This isn't like a campaign that they run. God picked these people, and they use uh, the example of Aaron um, to, to signify he was one that was chosen uh, by God in that line, in that priestly line. And so we see those observations of what the Old Testament priests were. Those who were following that former way would understand those things. Now look at this. Now look at how he starts to show you who Jesus is, the kind of priest that Jesus is, and how he meets those qualifications. Verses 5 through 10 in, in chapter 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you see Jesus was selected. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus 
offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we're just going to put a pin in that one, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt that down the road a couple of weeks. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on Melchizedek. It's going to be awesome, I promise. Um, but we're going we're gonna to push that one down. Here's what we see. Stay with me here. Jesus is the high priest, and this is the kind of high priest that the rest of chapter 5 here that we just read is talking about. He is the intercessor to God. Right, that he is the one and only intercessor to God, that now God has taken this priestly order, right? He established all these priests so that he, they could interact with the people of God to God, but now Jesus is the intercessor. He is offering gifts and prayers up to God. We see that here. He relates to men also, just as a priest would have, because of his humanity, but he also relates to God perfectly because he is without sin. He is completely without sin. He, he was human, but he was also God in the flesh and without sin, tempted, but never sinning. And then we see clearly here at the beginning of, in verse five and verse six, even these Old Testament references of he was chosen, right? God, God chose him, appointed his son to this role. We start to see now, okay, Jesus is now replacing this idea of what the high priest did and who he was. Um, if I'm honest, I still think it needs more context and clarity. Um, so like I said, we're covering a lot today. Um, for me, this feels like I am describing the best football player, but I haven't described for you the field and the rules of the game. So let me take you to chapter 9 of Hebrews, and we're going to dig in a little bit more to make sure we understand the full context of who the high priest is and what he does. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 5. This is what the author says. Now, even the first covenant, which is a reference to the Old Testament, right? So beginning in Genesis, right, the first half of our Bible, the Old Testament, he's referring to as the, the first covenant, how God used to interact with his people. Now, even the first covenant had reg regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's saying, remember how we used to interact with God. There was regulations. There's a way that God wanted to, in that old way, interact with his people. He gets into detail. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered in all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things, we cannot speak in detail. That's a lot of detail, though. Okay, let me show you. <clears throat> what we've got here, that's stanchion. Let me make this a little tighter here. Okay, so what we have here is God in his first covenant with his people in the Old Testament. He said, man, I want to interact with my people. And so I'm going to design this beautiful way to show my people how to interact with me. And so in a pretty ghetto way because we're pretty ghetto around here um <laughs> just kidding we have a building um okay <clears throat> so here we go <clears throat> here's what's happening 
there is, a, there is a place, right, outside of the tent, right, outside of the tabernacle where the people of God were, right? The people of God were, and they would go, and only a priest could then enter. You see what it said? The first section, right? The first section, and in this first section, right, there's a lampstand and a table and the bread of presence, and this is called the holy place. So here's outside, here's the camp, right, with all the mortals, right, the normal people, right? And then you enter into only a priest, and to be a priest, you got to have all these qualifications and holiness and all this stuff. It's a whole incredible lifestyle, right? And so you are now in the holy place in this illustration, right? And then there is the holy of holy places, right? And that is this spot over here. And this we're going to symbolize as the holiest of holy, right? The most holy place. And in this, there was all those things. There was the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and the gold and all this stuff and Aaron's staff and all this stuff. And this was a spot that only, only the high priest could enter once a year and make sacrifices for the people of God. And so once a year they could enter. And what this represents, what this was the manifestation for, not just represents what it was, was it was the presence of God in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus. This is before uh, Jesus released his Holy Spirit to live in those who follow us in Pentecost. Later, after Jesus ascends, this is how God chose to interact with people. This is the holy throne room of God that as his people were wandering around, he said, build this, and this is how you're going to interact with me. If this is the holy of holies, you can send one high priest into that spot once a year. There's a, there's a lot of speculation that when those high priests would go in, uh, they would tie a rope around their leg so that when they entered into that curtain, because nobody could see it, it's this closed veil, this curtain that's closed. When they entered in there, if they if they had messed up, if they had been in sin, if they weren't pure enough to enter into that place, if they hadn't done their, their, their cleansing rituals correctly for themselves and their souls and their imperfect self, then they would drop dead in the presence of God because that's how holy and powerful and reverent he is. And no one could go in and get their dead body, and so they would have a rope tied to them to pull him out um, if that ever happened. Right? Th that's the reverence of God. That this is how his first covenant worked with his people because he was showing us, I am a big deal. I am holy and I'm worthy of that. This isn't egocentric, right? He is the king of all things. He is worthy of glory. And so we have this setup, right? There's all these things in this area. And then look, these preparations having thus been made, verse six through 10 is what I'm reading. I'm gonna finish out just these few verses in chapter nine. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, right here, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. There's so much there we want have time to get into. Um, but I want you to see, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation, and the body imposed until the time of reformation. There's a lot there. Here's what I need you to walk away with. The priest's role was unbelievably important. If the priest didn't do what the priest was supposed to do, the priest's role was to come and make offerings for God's people. And there was one high priest, and we were counting on him. They were counting on him. You've got to go, and you're going to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year at this, at this one spot in time, and you're going to go, and you're going to give the offering to the Holy God so that he will forgive 
his people so that he will still bless and dwell and his presence will still remain with us as his chosen people. Incredibly important role the high priest was. I mean, it was the most important role. This was how they approach it, right? The significance of Jesus as the high priest. Look, look back, the very first three verses we looked. I want to throw them back up there, verse 14, 15, 16. Look at this. With this context in perspective, look at verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we, this is not Jewish people now. He's talking to us. He's talking to us now today. He's talking to people who aren't Jewish, who weren't connected to that first covenant, who aren't Old Testament followers. He's talking to all of us now that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then verse 16, let us with confidence draw near. Let, let us, not let the high priest, let us with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That is revolutionary. That means that Jesus is more than just a qualified additional priest to be added. It means that he is the priest, the way to connect to the Father. Um, The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection historically of what Jesus has done. And so 2,000 years ago, we believe that this perfect high priest came and he died and he rose again. And then in doing that, he sealed our fate for those who put their faith in Christ. Look what happened when he hung on a cross. Um, when Jesus hung on the cross and breathed his last breath, there's, there's multiple accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, three different accounts that are all saying the same thing. I'm going to read to you Matthew 27, 50, and 51. It says this. I'll put it on the screen. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded, and yielded up his spirit. Jesus hung on the cross. This is the moment where he dies. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all give the same account. When Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, that what happened was the curtain, the veil, that separated the Holy of Holies from us, literally, historically ripped. And all of a sudden, Jesus has come and done what no one else has been able to do because he was God in the flesh. And God said, I want to bridge. I want to be, I want my people to be able to approach me. And so through Christ now, these pathways have been opened to those who confess that Christ, Jesus Christ, is their high priest. And has now paved the way to be able to enter into the presence of a reverent, powerful, holy, perfect God. All of those things, those curtains, those barriers have been removed. That's huge. That changes everything. That changes everything for you. That is more significant than your midterms. That is more significant than who you date. That is more significant than your future job opportunities. That is more significant than anything else in all of your eternity. This theological reality... That is good news that now we can approach him. That theological reality, truth, is radically personal. Unless it isn't. The theological reality that we have a holy God that can be approached by us who don't deserve it through Christ is is 
is so massively important to my day-to-day world and your day-to-day world, wherever you are at in life, unless it's not. And if it's not, then we have to look at ourselves and think, why are we not approaching with radical boldness? Not one time at a summer camp or one time when the right worship song was on and I was feeling it or one time when I'm having my morning quiet time and coffee in the morning, but my life lived in the presence of God. Better is one day in that place than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist will say. Why? What keeps me from doing that? Because honestly, we don't. We don't. I don't. I don't utilize what I've been given by having Christ as my high priest, which now allows me to approach confidently. Do I live my life approaching confidently this God? Sometimes, yes, sometimes I do. And it's so sweet and fruitful. And it it supersedes the circumstances in my life because in his presence there is peace and there is just overwhelming peace and joy even when things aren't happy and things are dark. He is good. But there are so many areas in my life that I'm like, why do I still sit on my hands? Why have these veils been opened to me? I'm still just here. Oh, yeah, no, I theologically, I know that. God's approachable. I pray every once in a while, and I dip in and out. I want this for you guys. I want this for me. I want it for my boys. I want it for y'all. What keeps us from confidently approaching? That verse 16 um, that, that we started with, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What keeps us from doing that? Three things, ready? Um, here, here are three things that I think are, are huge and why we don't approach. Um, the first is, is honestly ignorance. Um, ignorance, it's because we say, I don't know how to approach, right? I don't, I don't know how to approach this God. And maybe I hear a sermon and I think, okay, cool, God's approachable, so I guess I can pray more. But show me what that looks like. Um, I've got, and this is, this is no matter what denomination, no matter where you're at, uh, there's so many of us that are in this room to say, okay, show me what that really means of how to approach him. Um, a little rabbit trail. I have got a lot of Catholic friends. Um, I actually lived overseas for a while and, and walked real closely um, with a lot of with a lot of Catholic brothers and sisters and Eastern Orthodox, which is very similar um, to Catholicism. And I am, you're, if you're Catholic in here, I love that you're here, right? There's no shade on that. You are a brother. And, if you are in Christ, right? If you put your faith in Christ, we're brothers, right? Your denomination looks a little different than this. And if you're Southern Baptist, it looks a little different. And if you're Methodist or Lutheran, right? It's all a little different. But one of the things, so I'm not throwing shade. Love that you're here, right? There is unity uh, with that if you are in Christ, no matter what denomination you might be. Um, but w- one, of the, one of the interesting things about Catholicism that um, honestly I think is a critique of that faith, right? It's, it's where even um, a lot of denominations in America split off was um, Catholicism has priests, right? And they have priests uh, who are amazing people and I'm friends with, with priests. But one of the things that happens in Catholicism is I think uh, at times specifically and theologically and I think at times inadvertently they feel like there are walls and some boundaries and even in our own personal life. We don't have to be Catholic to feel this. I've got to go through someone else to get to God. I've got to pray through someone else. Uh, I've, got to, I've got to have a priest who then that priest can be the intercessor for me. And, and, I, and I love, there's a lot of things that Catholics do really well that we've got to start taking note of. One of which being the reverence of God. I think oftentimes we can lean too much to be like, yeah, God's my BFF and he's just cool and we're just tight and 
you know, my, my prayers is, hey, Daddy God, what's up, man? And that, right? It's that thing. And I'm not throwing shade. I mean, yeah, I am. I'm throwing shade on you too. Um, but, I mean, we have critiques on both sides. We can get so casual with who this holy God is where we've just kind of reduced him to this just best friend, wingman, you know. I'll catch him. He's just waiting in my room whenever I get home. Like, or we swing all the way to say, he is so holy and I need somebody else. Hey, reality, man, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I get to be your pastor and I love that. Um, I don't have anything magical that God hasn't given you. Right? There's, nothing, there's nothing that I have as a, as a pastor. Now, I've got some wisdom and some knowledge and some gifts that I get to pour out for you, but there's, there's nothing that I have that um, I've got the market cornered on that you need me for, right? I hope to be utilized for you to be poured out and to share and to, to share my life, our whole staff to that way. But, but I, I'm not this special intermediary that, oh man, I need Ben. Um, we can approach. We, we can approach him. Um, and I think there's oftentimes critiques on all kinds of denominations. And again, there's unity, right? But man, run it through scripture. Run it through scripture. It says we don't need a high priest now. He's our high priest. He's the one. The veil's torn. I don't need that. I can go and approach God myself. That's huge. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, I need a volunteer on this side of the room. I'm going to pick Zach. He's going to hate this, but I'm going to pick Zach. Zach, will you please stand up? He already hates it, but I know he loves me, so he's going to forgive me. If it's will you stand in the aisle right there, bro? And then there's Francis. That's good. Okay, Francis, will you do something for me? Will you make these chairs that are empty, messy, and clog this aisle? Right, so just put, bring these, drag these chairs over here. Yeah, yeah, and there's some right here. Drag these suckers here. Okay, <clears throat> as you're doing that, let's say <clears throat> when we think about, okay, I, I don't feel like I can approach him. Perfect. Okay, well done. Give it up for Francis. <clears throat> if you say, man, I don't know how to approach him. Zach, he's a sinner, right? Everybody give it up for Zach. Um, <laughs> right, let's say this, right? This uh, word of God here on this stand in my water bottle is the throne of God, right? This is the holy throne of God. And in his personal life, he says, man, I want to approach God. I want to approach him. I want to be a guy who walks near. I want to be in his presence. I want to draw near to him. That's something I confidently want to do. But honestly, these chairs and the fact that Francis has made this aisle really messy represents his sin. Right, represents his sin, his brokenness, the brokenness of the world, the distractions of the world. And so he says, man, how do I get through it? So often, don't you do this? We think, man, I gotta clean up this stuff so that I can get to God, right? I've gotta, oh, I got all this stuff in the way between me and God. And what this text is saying is that Christ actually is on this side of our mess. That Christ is here. And so instead of saying, oh, man, there's all this stuff, that Christ is here with us, that he is our priest. Thank you for doing this, man. I know you hate this. Um, he's here with us. And so then what happens is Christ, not Zach, Zach's submission to Jesus Christ, Zach's surrender, Zach's confession that Jesus is his only hope to clear this, to get to him, that's Zach's role. Christ's role is to say, I am going to bring order out of chaos, and I'm going to slit things back, and this is called sanctification, right? And I'm going to clean up. It was messy, and theoretically, I won't make him walk up here. You can have a seat. But theoretically, Zach would then walk up with us, right? This is the Christian journey. <laughs> That's what that looks like. And so often, we think, did you guys think I was going to wipe out? You did, did you? Yeah, I did too. I was like, 
I, I actually eyed this lip earlier, and I was like, oh, one of these services, 8.30, I'm going to eat it just because I'll be tired. Um, does that make sense? How do I do this? I don't know how to approach him. There's so much junk in my life. I got to get it cleaned up. I got to remove all this stuff so that I can get to God, so that I can approach him and be in his presence. I want that. I'm designed for that, if you believe that truth. And so often we think, I got to do all this stuff. No, he is our hyper. He meets us. He, in his humanity, meets us and walks us in his perfection to this God. Grace. So is that all? We, he does, there's nothing that we have to do. He just does it all. What's he ask from us? Does he ask anything from us then if he's doing the work? Yes. Here's what he asks from you. Everything. We're not going to water this down, guys. I'm not going to sell you a shallow call. He says everything. When it says hold fast to your confession, what you're holding fast to is the confession that you are my king and I can't do it. I submit my life to you time and time again throughout scripture. That's what it meant to follow Christ. My life is no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm yours. I'm now no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. And so yes, what is, how do you do it? How do I, how do, I do this? You walk step by step with Jesus and your role is to surrender your life. God, would you take it? I'm tired of trying to be good enough. I'm tired of trying to be religious enough. I'm tired of, try, tired of trying to be moral enough or clean enough or whatever is focused enough. He asks for everything. He does. And we give it. And then we start taking stuff back. And as a loving father, he says, you're just hurting yourself. You're just creating more junk. Oh, you're right. And we give it. And it's good. And that surrender is sweet. That's what baptisms are. Next Sunday, that's what baptisms are. Baptisms are a picture of that surrender. There's nothing magical about baptisms. That's not what saves us. What saves us is those people who we dunk in a horse trough underwater. Those people are people who have said, my life is not my own and I want to surrender to Christ. And whether they did it when they were younger and they never really got to profess this picture as an adult or whether they've done it recently, they're saying, my life is my own. I'm dead and I'm buried and now I'm risen with Christ and I'm surrendered and he's my king and he's my hope. That's how we do it. One foot in front of the other and there's all these great ways of community and Bible study and keep learning. But ultimately what I want you to hear is you surrender your life and you walk with Christ through your junk. Second thing is this. Um, complacency. The second reason I think out of the three that I think why don't I approach him Maybe you know, right? Maybe you, you put your faith in Christ and that box is checked and you're like, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm still not fully walking in the fullness of what I should be. This is me, man. This is so convicting for me. Um, and it's this idea of complacency. I don't feel the need right now, right? I don't feel the need. And the reality is that I am designed to bring God glory. That is my purpose in life, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm his creation, that is your purpose in life, to bring God glory with your life because, because this thing isn't about you. And so, so here we have this idea of, okay, I'm designed to bring him glory. I'm designed to be in his presence. Um, and yet, I've got a lot of midterms this week. Right? I'm really busy with a lot of ministry stuff. I'm designed to do this. I'm designed to be in his presence and able to be in his presence, but I got a ton of stuff I got to prep for the Austin trip. So I don't, right, and I deprioritize it. I don't feel the urgency. I don't feel a dependency. 
And that is, that's convicting for me. Um, my buddy, Troy Kunkel, he's one of our family night leaders, one of, one of my favorite people. Um, he ran a, an Ironman, which is casual for him. It's like, oh, Saturday, I'll run, a, I'll run an Ironman today. Um, and, he's, and he's run multiple of them. And he was telling me a story of when he was running. He, was, he, he got on a bike with this other guy who got on a bike, but that guy like, wasn't all suited up with all the cool shoes and bike gear, I guess. And he was like, that's interesting. This guy doesn't seem like he's prepared for this. Um, and you have to like, bike for like 100 and something miles, right? And you run you know, a whole marathon, and you swim two miles and a whole deal. <clears throat> and he's like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, yeah, this is my first Ironman. And Troy's thinking, yeah, obviously. Um, and he's like, yeah. And the, the guy, the rookie, was like, you got any tips for me? Because Troy's done like four or five of them. He was like, yeah, man, just stay in front of your nutrition. Because as soon as you feel your, your hunger, right, as soon as you feel that, you, it's too late, right? Because you're on a 100-mile bike ride, over 100 miles. So as soon as you're like, oh, no, man, I'm getting really, man, I'm getting really low and I am feeling really weak. You're too late. You start eating, but your body, you're in the middle of it. You're a goner. And so you got to stay way on top of that. And this guy literally was like, yeah, man, I should be good. I got two moon pies and a bag of jerky in his bag. That's what he brought. And Troy's got all these like scientific gels and stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so it's this idea though, right? In, in, in that, just take that as an illustration of I don't feel like I need him that much. I'm busy. We do this all the time. And it was with good things. A lot of stuff going on. I don't feel my dependency on I don't really feel desperate for him right now, honestly, because things are pretty good maybe. And by the time I feel like I need him, man, it's, I've now, I've now spent a month of being apathetic, you know? And now all of a sudden I feel distant, and now all of a sudden I've, I feel far from him, and he hasn't. He doesn't change. Don't get me wrong. He doesn't change, but all of a sudden, I feel like, oh man, I've drifted. Which we've talked a lot about in Hebrews because Hebrews speaks a lot to that idea. Complacency, man. Feel that urgency now. Now prioritize, fight for it. Not just a quiet time, but a walk with him daily. You got a bunch of midterms? Great. Take Jesus with you. Study, pray before you study. Talk to him about how stressed you are. Meet with him. Don't compartmentalize him. Check off a box every day. Walk with him. Last thing is this. I'm going to land on this. Maybe, maybe it's okay. There's some things I need to grow in how I, how I approach him. I need to learn. It's an ignorance thing. Or maybe it is the complacency thing. Or maybe, even tied to those things, it's I just don't deserve it. The reason I don't approach is because of shame. I don't, think I, I don't think I deserve it. I hear this thing about Jesus being the high priest and he's paved the way and he'll meet me in my junk and he'll walk me, but Ben, do you know what I've done? Do you know what's been done to me? Do you know my thoughts? Do you know my temptations? Do you know my plans that I'm already planning are going to be disobedient? I know aren't going to be honoring to God. I don't deserve to approach him. And to that, I just hope you hear the grace of God telling you you're right. You don't deserve him. You never deserved him, and you never will deserve him. And that's not said to depress you. That's said to set you free. Because we are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. And so we approach God with all kinds of backgrounds and baggage and habits and temptations and sin patterns and, and ways that don't make us worthy. And he is a father who sits on our throne who says, I love you where you're at. You're broken. You're sinful. I'm going to call you out of that. And it's going to take a while. But walk with me. 
Don't let shame keep you from a God and a Father and a King who sits on a throne who says, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. That's our God. Let's approach him with confidence every day of our life. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for how you love us, God. You love us so beautifully and so perfectly. God, would you be glorified? Even as we go back into worship, God, protect us from singing songs. Would, would this not be a time where we shift into singing a couple of songs? Would this be a time where we approach you, a holy, reverent God that we have no business approaching? Would we approach you confidently? Would the lyrics that we sing be our prayers to a father that we believe desires because of Christ is bigger than our sin? Thank you, Father, that we can run to you Thank you that you are this good God who all of the the things that would separate us and should separate us, because you care about us, you remove them. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do right now in this moment. Leave us changed for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.